first. Okay, now it's recording. So yeah, if you just want to give me like a 30 second overview of, um, you know, where you went to school, how you joined the Navy, why you joined the Navy, um, and where you're at now. Sort of a career overview, if you will. All right. Well, let me start with this. Um, I've I wanted to fly most uh, as long as I can remember. Um, probably before I was even 10, I wanted to be a pilot. So I started looking or started working toward that, what I needed to do to become a pilot. And um, of course, thing I found out very quickly when I turned 16 and was working, I was actually driving an ice cream truck. I was driving an ice cream truck all day long to make enough money to go get a flight lesson. So then I would go get a flight lesson, drive the ice cream truck and do that back and forth. I did that most of the summer of the year I was 16. And um, so it became very obvious shortly thereafter that I wasn't gonna be able to afford flying on my own. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, what's the best way to do this now? So I started looking at the military. Now I'm like 17, getting ready to graduate from high school. I was in Ohio at the time. And uh, so I started looking at the military cause they were looking for people back then. It was the height of the Vietnam war. so. Mm. Uh, I applied for a Navy ROTC scholarship and uh, was selected. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news was I want uh, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer as, as well. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, what school should I go to to become an aeronautical engineer? One of the better schools at the time was Iowa State University. So I went to Iowa State on a full ride scholarship, which was great. Mm -hmm. They paid for all my tuition, books, fees. All I had to do was pay for room and board. So I, when I got to Iowa State, I found out that in order to be an aeronautical engineer, you had to know how to add. And uh, I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> so I uh, thought, well, I'm going to transfer back to Ohio State to get closer to my girlfriend at the time, who now is my wife and has been for 50 years. So it must have worked out something there. <laughs> So I went back to Ohio State and finished up there with the uh, ROTC program. And while I was there at Ohio State, the, the Navy also paid for my uh, private pilot's license. So I continued to fly then as well. So, um, and then of course, after graduating from college, I became an ensign and uh, went to Naval uh, Flight School and uh, got my wings and then proceeded to my, my whole goal in this whole thing was to become an airline pilot. So my whole goal then was, okay, what kind of airplane would be best to be an airline pilot? And where was I going to get most my flight time? Mm -hmm. At that time, the P3 guys were getting a lot of flight time. The jet guys weren't flying much at all. So I elected to become a P3 pilot and uh, the rest is history. I stayed uh, almost, I guess, a little under six years uh, active duty. I continued to fly P3s in the reserves for another 19 years, and I retired in uh, 1995 uh, from the Naval Reserve. Subsequently, when I got out of the active duty, I was also I also got hired by an airline, and uh, at the time it was North Central, mm -hmm. and North Central then became Republic shortly after I uh, started. And so, uh, and then Republic got purchased by Northwest and then Northwest got purchased by Delta and I ended up retiring from Delta as well. So 
that's pretty much my career path. So I had two of them going at the same time. I was flying P3s in the, in the reserves and I was also flying with the airline uh, and, uh, and made a career of both actually. Yeah. That's more than 30 seconds, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah. A brief intro, not the long-winded eight-hour version with every little <laughs> detail. <laughs> yeah, possible detail. So, what was the what was it like? Um, I don't know. Going into flight training, can you talk about what flight training in the Navy was like? Sure. Um, flight training it consisted of three phases. Actually, you were your primary, which everybody goes through primary, and it was at the time I did it was through in Pensacola. And uh, since I went down there already as a commissioned officer, uh, I had a different career path than the guys who went down before they were, they, they have to go to OCS or officer's uh, candidate school, and then they go down to flight school. I was already commissioned, so I went to flight school. So then you spend about six months of your time going through primary, and uh, primary includes, at the time, the T-34 Bravo model. And then after you completed that, you went out to uh, Whiting Field, which is near Pensacola, and we we flew T-28s at the time, ra radio engine T-28s, I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. And then about that time, you had to start to determine what you were going to do and what you wanted. Um, in my class of 12, I graduated third in my class of 12, so I got my, you just choose based on your grades, and so I wanted P3s. I was already married at the time and, uh, and uh, had a daughter. So I really didn't want to spend a lot of time on a ship. So P3 was the best option for that. So then I, after you get done with you, then you go, once you select, and I went maritime patrol, which was P3s, then you go to Corpus Christi, Texas, and you fly at the time, the multi-engine trainer was the S2. Um, and uh, so I got my multi-engine there just prior to getting my wings. And once you get your wings, then you go to what they call a replacement air group, which sends you, in this case, it was VP-30, which was stationed at Patuxent River, Maryland. And you go there just to specifically learn how to uh, fly the P-3. And then, you're, then you go on to your squadron. And uh, my squadron was in VP-11 out of uh, Brunswick, Maine. Yeah. And I spent three and a half years there uh, with that squadron. Yeah. So having spoken to a couple of other Navy guys who flew the S2, um, was it really as bad as I hear? Uh, you mean the flight training? No, the airplane. Oh. The S2 tracker. Oh, the S2. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, has, it had its uh, quirky things, and uh, it was kind of uncomfortable because it wasn't air conditioned. We were in Texas. It was hot. It was, you know, very hot to fly. Um, the... While we were there, one of my good buddies and well, there was a crew of three, an instructor and two of them. Anyway, they they crashed and were they were all killed. And uh, that was my first, I guess, comeuppance about what I was actually doing. That this you know this aviation thing could be dangerous if you didn't didn't handle it right. And basically, what the P three what the S two would do in that situation, if you'd lose an engine and you didn't didn't get the switching right, that the, the uh, rudder would go into uh, it would do opposite of what you thought. If you were hitting left rudder, it was actually give you right rudder. It was a trim problem. And so if you didn't turn this specific switch off, then you ended up in a bad situation. 
Yeah. Yeah. The guys I've talked to have had um, near misses with losing engine on S2 and not, and they've talked about the instructor yelling and yelling at them to always hit the, they said they basically had it ingrained into their minds to always hit that switch. Yeah. Um, I wish I could remember what the switch was called. Do you remember what they actually called it? Uh, I know I've heard it, of it before. It was rudder something, rudder yeah. something assist or something. It was like a rudder assist button or something. Yeah. And if yeah. you didn't have that off, yeah, it would give you a rudder reversal and yeah. not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So what was the P3 like in terms of flying and uh, pilot? Like, what was it like to fly? P3 was a very nice airplane. It was a, a large four-engine turboprop, of course. Um, it had a hundred maximum maximum weight of 100. Well, my, I flew the B models, which were 127,500 pounds. 60,000 pounds of that was fuel. So you had a lot of fuel. Uh, even in cruise, you only burned 4,000 pounds an hour. And uh, once we got out on top of the submarine, we didn't need to go fast anymore. So we could slow down and actually shut down one and sometimes two engines. We get our fuel flow well under uh, 3,000 pounds an hour, like 2,200 pounds an hour. It was very efficient at that point. And, yeah. and you could stay out there for a long time. Um, my longest flight was 14.6 hours. And, uh, wow. and I still came back with lots of fuel. So um, yeah. it's a very efficient, it, it was great platform for what it did. Now, yeah. In the squadron, in each squadron at that time had uh, about 10 airplanes and they also had 350 total members. Uh, they would have 10 to 12 flight crews and then uh, each flight crew would uh, be 12, 13 uh, people. And uh, so you became a little family, just your own, your own crew. You always flew with the same group yeah. of guys. So that was the, that was that was a great way to learn. You know, I knew people for year. I still get in touch with these people at times from guys I used to fly with. So, yeah, yeah. The airplane itself uh, was very. It was hydraulically assisted controls. It flew like a, a Cadillac. Uh, uh, you could fly without the hydraulics, and it flew more like a Mack truck. But um, <laughs> it was it was pretty forgiving. Um, yeah. It had long range. Uh, 4,000 nautical mile range. Um, and, uh, you know, with a good tailwind, I, I actually went uh, nonstop from Hawaii back to uh, uh, Selfridge here. And that's more like 6,000. We, we figured we needed a seven or a, a 50 mile an hour tailwind to do that. And we ended up with a 75 mile an hour. We had plenty of fuel when we got here. So it was pretty wow. good. Yeah. So what was ASW like? Yeah, ASW, ASW was, uh, when I first started in the P3, the most critical thing about anti-submarine warfare is uh, knowing where you were mm -hmm. because navigation was everything because our sensors, our underwater sensors, uh, they, weren't, they weren't very long range at times, you know, so you had to... Yeah. If you, we never went out there just looking randomly for a submarine. We have some kind of data that would say where the submarine would be. And they would give us a position to say, this is where the submarine is. Well, then you go out there with a navigator who, even on his best day, if everything's working good, he's plus or minus five miles. Well, if you've got to find a submarine within two miles and you don't even know if you're in the same ocean, plus or minus five miles, then it's going to be difficult to locate the submarine that, where you think it is. So... When we got to where we had, and, um, they weren't really 
GPSs. Uh, are you familiar with an INS, inertial navigation yeah, system? Inertial nav, yeah. yeah. So what you do, and, and when the, the initial, we had an inertial navigation system on the P3, but it was very rudimentary and it wasn't very accurate. So, you know, sometimes you could take off out of Brunswick, Maine, and within 15 minutes, it would show you in Anchorage, Alaska. So it was not, you know, very accurate. As they got better and better, just like GPSs did, um, the newer INSs got very, very good. And you could go out on a 12-hour mission and come back and you'd be off less than a tenth of a mile. So you knew exactly where you were. And because you knew where you were and you knew where the, air, uh, the submarine was, you could you could be right on top of the submarine. You go out and drop buoys and they were, then there was a submarine. So now did it happen every time? No. Lots of times we'd set up these sauna buoys in a pattern based on the fact that we know the submarine's going from point A to point B and we'd set up a pattern of buoys in front of that submarine and then wait for him to drive through it. Because um, mm -hmm. the one thing you don't know about the submarine is did he speed up, did he slow down, whatever. You just know yeah. his base, you know. So you set up this string of buoys that could be 16, 17, 20 miles wide uh, long and then wait for the uh, thing to come through. And then based on that, you could uh, continue to track him. You could get him down to what they called a attack criteria so that you could uh, launch a weapon or whatever. So uh, yeah. I never launched a weapon. Uh, I, I launched him in practice, obviously, and never in, we were never in a wartime. Oh, so. Right. Anyway, so where were you? Again. <laughs> yeah. Where were you flying out of when you were doing patrols? Some base on the Eastern seaboard? Or yeah, well, well, the in Brunswick, Maine, there were six squadrons of P3s. In Jacksonville, they had six squadrons also. And at any one time, two of those squadrons would be deployed to somewhere in the Atlantic. We were, we were an Atlantic-based group. So we, we would deploy to either the deployment sites on the, on the East Coast were uh, Keflavik, Iceland, um, Bermuda, the Azores, and uh, Spain, and sometimes uh, Italy, Naples, Italy. Mm -hmm. I mostly spend my time in the, uh, the Azores and Spain and Bermuda. They tended to send the newer airplanes, the sea models, up to Keflavik, Iceland, primarily because it's, in my estimation, it's easier to catch a submarine coming out of the North Fleet as he goes by Iceland. It's a lot harder to go out and find him off in, in the Azores or, or even around Bermuda. So they wanted to make the P3C look better. So they'd send the P3Cs up there so mm -hmm. they'd have more contact time. So that's yeah. that was kind of a political thing. So we yeah. didn't I didn't really care to go to Iceland. I mean, I went there a couple of times. I saw it. I said, you know, it's it's a pretty desolate place. It's not a real, you know, it's not like playing uh, tennis in Bermuda. <laughs> yeah. We'd be in Bermuda, be on the ready, out playing tennis all day. And it was mm -hmm. a interesting thing. So yeah. the other thing, and it's just not anti-submarine warfare. We also did surface surveillance in the P3, and we right. we'd also do search and rescue, and uh, both of those were fairly important jobs. Yeah. So what was it like um, transitioning out of active duty into the reserves? Was it like was it different? Uh, yes and no. When you're in the reserves, you know you know you're there. You're there because you want to be there. And uh, mm -hmm. not necessarily, sometimes when you're active duty, you, you're pretty much locked in, you know, you've got it, you owe, uh, owe them some time. So there's a little bit different political, you know, the, you don't, I don't want to say you don't have to be as good when you're in the reserves, but, you know, 
if you didn't like it, you could quit. You know, so I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. But uh, I, I enjoyed it. While I was in the reserves, I, I was an instructor pilot there and instructed almost the whole time I was there. I was an instructor pilot in VP-11 as well. And when I came, I, I left VP-11 and um, after three and a half years, but I still owed the Navy a year. So mm -hmm. I went down and, and uh, did primary training in what now was the T-34 Charlie, which was oh, really? the the yeah. turboprop version of the t-34 yeah. and i showed up uh, to my you know my new command down there vt2 with my uh resignation letter in hand said look i'm i'm getting out in a year so here's my resignation letter uh, mm -hmm. i'll see i'm gonna leave in a year and so um that's, that's what my plan was and and then when i left the squadron and went to the airlines then I started looking for a different reserve, and I know that the uh, I was going to be flying the airline out of Detroit anyway, and then they had a reserve squadron right here at uh, Selfridge Air National Guard Base, yep. so I uh, came up and joined that group, and I was there from 1979 until 1995. Well, actually, I had to leave the squadron in 93, yeah. because uh, it's a certain point you get to where you, you, you've, you, know, you rank out and you can't really be in the squadron anymore. Uh, because you're just too uh, senior. So, yeah. Well, I've been um, I've been to Selfridge before, actually this past year, with my um, Civil Air Patrol squadron. But we saw um, we were touring some KC 135 tankers, and there was a P3 that started up like 40 feet away from us, um, and then it taxied out, and we watched it take off. Um, but so, do you know like if the Navy currently still flies P3s? No, uh, they're pretty much, they're all gone now. Uh, okay. I can't remember exactly what year they quit flying them, but uh, it's not been that, you know, they replaced them all with the P8. Yeah. And, uh, right. And I don't think there's any active duty. In fact, I'm sure there's no active duty squadrons anymore, P3s. I, they've all closed up. Yeah. But um, I, I think that they made a mistake in that, you know, the P3 could do. I think longer period. Now, okay, the PA can get you out there faster, but mm -hmm. he's going to run out of gas faster too. So we can yeah. stay out there a lot longer than a P8 could. And you know, I really don't know how much fuel that thing carries or how long its endurance is. But the turboprop is a, a much more efficient way to find submarines. I think, of course, I'm a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was it like? How did you get from flying at the airline and, and in the reserves to getting involved with the Yankee Air Museum? Oh, well, obviously I wasn't flying in the reserves anymore when I see when did I actually get out the Yankee Air Museum. Let's see, probably 2008 or so I joined out there. I'm, I'm really, I can't really say how many, it's, it's been over 10 years I've been with the Yankees. Yeah. But, uh, it was just that I knew some of the guys that were flying out there that I'd flown with in the Navy, you know, Randy Houghton being one and um, Howard Rundell being another. And, um, uh, so it was kind of a, you know, they were looking for people and they, the, the Yankee Air Museum tends to like people that have a lot of hours. And in my case, some tailwheel time that, that qualified me to fly the C-47. And then, uh, yeah. so they like that high time type pilot. And uh, and I had some round motor experience with the T-28. So I, I understand the mechanics of that. So that's how I got into that group. Yeah. What was it like flying the C-47 for the first time? You know, I, I find that one of the most difficult airplanes uh, to fly. It's uh, It has some strange, 
I guess the, 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 the center of gravity thing where the tail is always trying to get around to the front, um, it, it causes it to be a little bit squirrely on the ground. In the air, it's wonderful. It's a great airplane to fly. And, uh, but when you're near the ground, it gets a little more dicey. And the airplane tends to, in, in crosswinds or whatever, you know, weathercocks, and the next thing you know, you're doing a ground loop or something. I haven't had that experience yet, but because <laughs> I'm going to try to stay ahead of it as much as I can. But yeah, anyway, yep. that, nice airplane. And then how did you get over to the 25? Well, they allow you to fly two different airplanes out there at any one time. So that you know, I just like that. I you know I, I thought that would be the hot rod of the outfit. So I thought, shoot, I, I'll fly that one too. And, they're always yeah. looking for a few good men and, and they'll take me too. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So the obvious question then is which one do you prefer? Oh, is this a setup? Did, yeah. did Lane ask you to tell? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when I'm flying with Tony, I say the C-47. When I'm flying with Delane, I go, oh, you no, I like the B-25. B-20. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's tough, man. I, I, there's good pluses and minuses on both sides, but I'm going to say, yeah, I like the B25. I, it's it's yeah. fast, it's uh, maneuverable, and it's it's like the difference between flying a Cadillac and a, and the B25 is like flying a sports car. So, yeah, I'd say yeah, that's why I like it better. Yeah, sorry for putting you on the spot. Yeah. That was uh... just don't show it to Delane or, or Tony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your future as a C-47 pilot might be uh, in a little in bit of danger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is there one, maybe looking back across your um, flying experience, is there maybe one day that sticks out to you and that it was an unusual mission or one day that you thought, you know, that you had a lot of fun with? Uh, well, if we're going to talk Navy, I'd say... Um, there's several things that happened to me uh, when I was flying in the Navy that were interesting, but uh, one of the most interesting ones I think was it was at the height of the uh, Cold War with Russia, and Russia was in the process of uh, they were supporting the Angolan rebels in in the Angola War in Africa, yeah. so they would send uh, shipping out of the Black Sea through the Mediterranean Sea and then down to the Angola, which is you know down the coast of Africa, so. We were sent out one day to uh, what they call um, rig a cruiser, a Russian cruiser that was coming out of the Mediterranean. And we were mm -hmm. told that they were aggressive. I guess that's the best word to say. They were aggressive. Yeah. So we went down and we found this guy. And so we, we had heard that he was not, you know, not very friendly. So we got, mm -hmm. got very, we found who, who he was. We got out in front of him five miles and we just kind of circled out there and made, you know, just, just lollygagging around like we we're just out there having a good time, mm -hmm. and then it was time to go in for the rig. And the rig is basically you're down low to the uh, water, you know, three or four hundred feet off the water, and you fly down one side of the ship, and then you do a, a two hundred seventy degree turn. And you go across the the uh, stern of the ship, do another two hundred seventy degree turn. You go up the ship again, up the right side of the ship, mm -hmm. and then you come back around to a racetrack, and you come over top the ship, and then you roll. So that you can get a good picture because we're taking pictures out of the side window with this really high 70 millimeter big camera and we roll on top of the guy looking right down his stacks so mm -hmm. we got ready to do the run and we started to come in 
And I said, all right, guys, be ready. Now we have sensors on our airplane too, uh, you know, for radars and fire control radars and whatever. And as we approached the ship, every fire control radar on that ship lit up. And it, that means they're, they're locking on us. <laughs> and so we didn't know what that, I mean, we knew what it means, but we were hoping he wasn't going to shoot. And uh, he didn't, thank God, he would have just knocked us out of the sky. But it's kind of disconcerting to go by that ship. And as we, I, I've got a picture of somewhere, I don't even know if I can find it now, but as I was coming over the top and we were rolling, doing that roll, you know, about mm -hmm. a 70 degree angle bank right on top of the guy, every gun on that ship was trained on us and just trained, you know, as we went by, really? every gun was pointing right at us. So I wow. thought, well, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was my big, oh, and, and he did in fact shoot flares, uh, but he, you know, they weren't, they're just not very dangerous. Yeah, they did go above our altitude, though. I mean, the flares went up to about four hundred feet, and we were <laughs> we were three hundred feet. So, I guess you could call that aggressive, huh? Probably, as if the fire control radar and the guns aren't evidence enough. Yeah. So, what was your call sign in the Navy? Did you have one? Uh, well, not really. Uh, I mean, we we've you mean like a nickname? Yeah. Okay. Well, the P3 Navy used to laugh about the jet jocks having uh, that stuff, but you know. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, we don't. We didn't really have call signs like that, but uh, even though we we got a couple, I mean, you know, just guys joking around. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I used to pride myself on my landings. That was, I, you know, I still do. But I think my landings are. That's really what you, it's all about. You know, that's what pilots like to do: good landings. So one particular day we were flying the Commodore from the Azores up to England. And uh, again, I, I, where we, were, we landed and when I touched down, it was one of the worst landings I think I've ever had in my life. And so yeah. somebody turned to the Commodore and said, hey, how'd you like that landing? And he went like this, like his <laughs> false teeth. So after that, my crew started calling me Bam Bam. So uh, I... Uh, and I, I guess, I guess, in fact, I think, I think I have, a, yeah, well, here it is, my, my I Love Me, yeah, so here, here's my I Love Me uh, ceramic thing they gave me, and right on the, on the thing it says, uh, Bam Bam Bateman, PPC extraordinaire, CAC 3, VP 11, 1975 through 78, <laughs> that's what the, the crew gave me as a, uh, a, a memento, bam, bam. This is, by the way, this is my I love me room. I can see you see all the airplanes I got hanging on the wall. And yeah. P3 back there. And got my airplane up there. Got all yep. the airplanes. You can't see them. They're all air. Every airplane I've ever flown is right up here. I got them, got them all, buddy. Yep. All right. So we can go ahead and start wrapping this up here. Um, so final question. You have a blank check and a time travel machine. What three airplanes are you going to buy and why? Ooh. Man. Uh, 757. The DC-9. And the P-3. Yeah. All three of which I enjoyed flying immensely. And I, like I said, I, I don't know how many, I think I've got well over 5,000 hours in a P3. I've got 15,000 hours in a DC-9. Wow. And uh, 
The 757, I've probably got, how do I fly that for four? I've probably got 3,000 hours in that. So, uh, yeah, all three of those airplanes were a joy to fly and uh, just the best of the best of the best. I think maybe yeah. the DC-9 was the, I liked it the most because that's what I flew first with the airline and, mm. uh, and I am the longest. And that, and I was young and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, when you, the longer you do something, and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed my career the entire time. But when you're young and you're out there flying that DC-9, it was just, you know, you thought you had the world by the tail. It was just a, a great experience. So yeah. those, that's it. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, I appreciate your time tonight. Okay. Sure. And now you're going to, you're going to uh, share this or you just kind of put it in your archives. <laughs>